and thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Our goal with Life Between the Notes is to give you a peek behind the curtain so you can get to know our local musicians and learn about not only their lives, but how they navigate their careers and what drives and inspires them. We are finding out that there's so much more behind music than what you hear on stage in a performance. In short, we are unfolding the musical hearts of our guests and sharing their humanness. On that note, we are so grateful for our sponsors and their belief in our mission. You will hear Gretchen talk about our sponsor in this episode, the York Youth Symphony Orchestra. The YYSO creates a unique opportunity for elite youth musicians to learn challenging repertoire with peers, perform in a variety of venues, and expand their perspectives of what it means to be a musician. We are looking forward to the 22-23 season under the direction of maestro Brian Buderbaugh. Calling all youth musicians, join us next year as we bring diverse and challenging music to life on stage. Auditions for our next season will be held on Saturday, August 27th at William Penn Senior High School. More information can be found on our website, yorkusymphony.org. We hope to see you at one of the spectacular concerts this upcoming school year. Also sponsoring today's episode is the York Music Teacher Association who serve the York music community through student and teacher enrichment. YMTA is a nonprofit local affiliate of PMTA and Music Teachers National Association, MTNA, which currently serves over 25,000 independent music teachers nationwide. Their goal is to promote the continuing education of independent music teachers in York, as well as provide performance and educational opportunities for their students. Thanks so much to all of our sponsors for helping make our mission possible. In this episode, Gretchen shares which teachers shaped her as a musician and how incredibly impactful their influence was. You will learn how the harpsichord is not the only instrument she has an affinity for and how passion for something is often the vehicle that drives us to persevere through our careers. We could have easily talked with Gretchen for another hour. I love getting to know her a bit better, and we think you will love getting a glimpse of Gretchen's life between the notes. And welcome everyone to Life Between the Notes, where we are going beyond the bio and bringing you interviews of your favorite South Central PA musicians. I'm Kirsten Myers, and my co-host Morgan Davis is here today as well. Hi, Morgan. Hi. Have you had, do you have your coffee? I do. I've got it right here. I've got okay. it in my Ohio State mug, so I'm all set. <laughs> Well, I went to Michigan State, so I, oh. I didn't, I didn't bring my mug, and, and I have a red uh, coffee cup. So you're on, you're on my side today. Yeah, this is, yeah. Well, my brother went to Ohio State, so we're good there, but. All right. Okay. All right. 
Anyway, so, um, and we are incredibly honored today to have pianist Gretchen Decker joining us today. So, hi Gretchen, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hi Kirsten, hi Morgan, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, um, just so everybody can um, get to know Gretchen a little bit better, I'm going to let you know what she's been up to. Um, she was born and raised in central Pennsylvania. Um, she began her formal music training at the piano locally and continued her studies at the Peabody Preparatory School in Baltimore. Following her graduation from Northeastern High School, she entered the Peabody Conservatory and graduated with honors. Pursuing a strong interest in the harpsichord, she auditioned for and was accepted by Gustav Lanhard as one of four pupils in his international class. During her time of residence in Amsterdam, she studied both harpsichord and organ and performed recitals throughout the Netherlands, France, and Belgium. Since receiving a Master of Music degree with high academic honors and special recognition for distinction in performance from the New England Conservatory of Music, Gretchen has concertized as both a soloist and collaborative artist in the Mid-Atlantic region. She has been featured as a concerto soloist with the York Symphony Orchestra, the Harrisburg Symphony, the York College Symphony Orchestra, and the Hershey Symphony, among others. Continuing a long career in church music, serving a wide variety of denominations, Gretchen has since 2020 been the music director of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of York. As the current president of the York Music Teachers Association and a member of the York Symphony Orchestra Education Committee, the board of the Matinee Musical Club of York and a second term board member for York County Honors Choirs, she is a passionate, active, advocate for arts and arts education in the region. Since 1998, Decker has been an adjunct professor of piano, harpsichord, early music history, and oral theory, as well as a staff accompanist at York College of Pennsylvania. In 2012, she co-founded the YC Prep Community Music School, which is based at York College and offers pre- and post-collegiate studio music instruction and performance opportunities in all disciplines. Gretchen maintains a robust private piano studio while still finding time to enjoy cooking, reading, and aerobic ornamental gardening on a small farm in northern York County with her Dutch husband. I love that, aerobic ornamental gardening. That is not an exaggeration. We have almost 16 acres, um, some of which is wooded, but a lot of which is not. And since there are a few boundaries, the garden just keeps getting bigger and... <laughs> That's yeah, that's amazing. And when when I got an email from you the the other day saying that you'd been out and then your washer had broken. <laughs> and you were doing that aerobic ornamental gardening at the time. So. Yeah, that was that was pretty catastrophic. Unfortunately, uh, we, we did get a new washer. Uh, but with an old farmhouse, it's always an exciting thing. We had to break all the molding off the doors to have it pass through the door frames. Uh -huh. <laughs> there's always, there's always uh, an adventure on this property. Yeah. That's the joy of home ownership, right? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so, great. So, Gretchen, we want to start at the beginning. I mean, I, I have, uh, I've known you, I, I think it's maybe about 20 years or so that I've been involved in, in York County with, with Symphony and the college and everything. Um, but, you know, even 
before then, probably when I was in college and I was playing um, concerts over the summers, uh, I remember being at uh, playing at a, a church um, in York at one point, and you were a soloist there, and it, you know, I don't know what the word is. Maybe it's awestruck, or it's just you're you're amazing, <laughs> and um, it was it, it's just uh, been an honor to know you for this um, this long, so. Um, that must that must have been the Oratorio Society. Uh, you probably played on Abed music at First Presbyterian Church. Because, that was it. Yep, because I, I did uh, harpsichord concertos. Rob Fraser uh, contracted with me. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that, that was ages ago, but uh, yeah. Um, anyway, honored to have you here. So, so you grew up in York County. I did. Yes. And so, and you went to Northeastern High School. Right. Correct. Yeah. I start, actually, I started in York City Schools. My parents had a house on West Jackson Street um, when I was a little girl, but we moved out here. Yeah, I think I was, it was just the very end of third grade. So I was about, I was seven when we moved out here. So yes, it's been Northeastern since third grade. Okay. And when did you start taking piano lessons? See, I, you know, that, that was one of the questions you asked me. And I, I know that I started taking lessons with someone named Doreen uh, on the second floor of Sam Keeney Organ and Piano in Spry. I don't remember if that was before or after we moved. And it didn't last long in any case after we moved because it was too far to drive. So I know for sure I started in third grade. So I just conventionally say I started when I was eight. Um, okay. Okay. And it was Ms. Snyder, not to be confused with Mrs. or Miss Snyder. And she was the elementary school, you know, sort of general music teacher and um, right. lived five minutes from our house, which made it very appealing. Convenient. Yeah. Also. Yeah, definitely. So and so you then studied at Peabody Prep eventually. Eventually. Yeah, that was um, so, you know, kind of a long and, and not particularly distinguished early childhood uh, journey with music and just parents who were very supportive but knew nothing, uh, but just knew that I should be taking music lessons. And we went from Ms. Snyder to Randy Yoder, who was luckily the uh, music, general music teacher at Northeastern when I got to junior high in seventh grade. Okay. And when I got to ninth grade and was you know, acting out the way teenagers do and, and showing all the signs that there had to be changes but wasn't articulate enough to tell my mom what I thought I needed because I didn't know. This was before the internet. Um, she didn't know anything except somebody had told her that the closest serious music school was Peabody because it was in Baltimore. So she called them and said, what do I do with this 14 year old person? And they put her onto the prep. And so I went down and auditioned for the prep just before I turned or maybe just after I turned 15 and uh, started there and, and did about a year and a half at the prep. Okay. So it wasn't until much later. And I wish, I wish that I had had a much earlier acquaintance with that level of training, but you know, sure. if wishes were horses, beggars yes. were so it is what it is. Well, and practicality of that. Right. Well. Right. My Interesting. Were, sorry, go ahead, Morgan. Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I think it's interesting because I think that's a similar story to people you know, we grow up in this rural situation um and so some of what gets you through to that point that you finally reach that training you need is that having a supportive family or having someone supportive around you who you know just explores your options and especially prior to the internet age um you know a lot of what 
eventually came together for me was just my mom making phone calls and figuring out what's, you know, it's a similar thing. What, what's the right, where do I put you um, to, to get what's necessary? So I just think it's an interesting commonality. Um, you know, the training matters, but also that support system matters a lot. It does. It does. And I, you know, I, I, well, you know this, Kirsten, because it's been a sort of a theme in my desire to get to my big project, my heart project, which is, you know, still limping along. But I think access is just so important. And my family was not, you know, we were not well off. And then we moved out to the country and we only had one car. Um, you know, there just weren't a lot of resources, well, which, which is my, one of my other song and dance things, which is the incredible importance of the quality of the school music instructors, because frequently, or, or the church choir director, if you will, because those are frequently the first and most important point of contact for kids that don't live in an area that has, uh, you know, more dedicated community music school type resources. Mm-hmm. And yes, I was extremely lucky um, to make contact with Randy Yoder and he tolerated me uh, even though I periodically skipped lessons and grew my fingernails and did all the things that a 13 year old girl would do um, but he he stuck with me and for that I am extremely grateful yeah that's great yeah and and Randy was involved in in a lot of aspects of the York music community I believe yes yes and he's you know he's sort of a consummate musician although he would poo-poo himself and his training and his ability. He's a wonderful pianist. He can play any style. He's a composer. He's an excellent, excellent choral director. He's patient beyond all rational point when it comes to dealing with teenagers and music. He was in a cover band, you know, he, he just was the perfect uh, influence. Yeah. He get me through the, the awkward growing years before I hooked up with Peabody Prep. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, so now you were describing like how you maybe didn't show up for lessons and such. Um, like, <laughs> were you, were you an avid practicer? Like, or did that, when, or maybe when did you start taking it more seriously? I, you know, I don't, you, you asked that question and I wrote down, it says, how often did you practice? And I said, never, because I don't think I properly knew how to practice. And I loved music and I, we had one, I mean, speaking of resources, this is not an exaggeration. We had one 33 long playing record of Rudolf Serkin playing the three famous Beethoven piano sonatas, the Moonlight, the Patetique and the Appassionata which I wore out listening to on our record player. And my parents had subscribed to the uh, Reader's Digest, great classical music, you know, book club of the month thing, but then they had to drop it because of financial reasons. So I thought Beethoven had only written six symphonies until I graduated from high school because we never got seven, eight, and nine. That was right. Oh. Um, but I didn't practice. I think what I did was I just tried, you know, I just, was so drawn to the piano. And yes, I was taking lessons. I remember the John Thompson books. No, I don't remember enjoying the dozen a day exercises or particularly doing anything that I was supposed to be doing, but I was desperately trying to play the Moonlight Sonata, which was the only piece of sheet music we had that wasn't 70s pop songs or hymns, Mm -hmm. Christmas carols. Uh, and just being like really, really curious and definitely trying things over my pay grade. So did I practice? No. Did I play a lot? Yes. Right. And you just, you didn't give up. Like you just, you know, it's kept going and 
kept. Yeah, there's a certain element of like stupid bullheadedness that comes into play at some point for every musician. And, you know, what I was lucky about was, you know, in trying to play things that were so beyond my technical ability, because I hadn't had great training, I was very lucky that I got sent to the prep when I did, because that teacher, Kathy Jacobson, I would say she saved me from probably just completely seizing up with tendonitis because I had no idea what I was doing and a lot of it was wrong. Um, So that was a near like skating close to the edge of the abyss there with, and I think a lot of kids do that. I think um, especially kids who are very musical, they just, they're attracted to the big meaty pieces for their instrument and they want to do it no matter what. Um, So, right. Yeah. So did I practice? No. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder too, if that like uh, curiosity and just that like interest, you know, if that sort of fuels a necessary, like we all know how challenging this career is. And without that sort of childhood of real enjoyment and, and that developing that love of music, it would be hard to do the things you needed to do as a, as a professional musician to keep yourself going. I mean, it's not quite the same I mean, I remember spending hours playing the piano for fun. I mean, I'm a flutist now, but as a kid, because I just liked it, you know, it was just something that gave me a lot of joy and it was really fun to play these pieces that I loved, whatever they were. Um, But I think that kind of stuff sort of keeps us motivated when things get difficult as we grow out of that stage and then, you know, really have access to the, the more difficult things that we have to do to be good musicians. I think that's so interesting, Morgan. I mean, I am I saying your name correctly? Is it Morgan? <laughs> yeah, it's Morgan. Oh, Morgan, uh, you know, sorry. But, no, it's okay. okay. I'm used to that. And my, we made it complicated with the extra N. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so I think that's really interesting. And it's something that, I wouldn't say it keeps me up at night, but it does give me pause because Noah, my son, is taking a, you know his final gen ed class or something, and he's coming home and saying, you know, the difference between nature and nurture. And I think about that a lot with music because I was what I would call pretty much like a free range, um, organic musician. Yeah. Um, yes, I took piano lessons with the lady down the road, but mostly it was just that we had pianos in in Grandma's house and our house, and I just fooled around with it Mm -hmm. and I don't know how much time a lot of kids these days have to fool around or how much they're being given by their parents to fool around I'm awfully weary of the question you know when's the next exam when's the what are you preparing how about about you just let them fool around and if they really want to play Coldplay we can use that to build their music yeah that's I think so correct and you know I was an only child we live somewhere quite rural um, wasn't like I had friends running up to the house and wanting to play and hang out. And I mean, when I wanted to entertain myself, if my parents were busy, I played the piano, I played the flute. Um, I wasn't on the internet because that wasn't a thing. Yeah. So I, I think there's, there is an interesting, you know, change in all of those things and all of the ways that kids occupy their time. Um, but all of that really made me enjoy music so much more. It made it important to me. Mm. so yeah yeah oh that's interesting yeah so it 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 becomes a a priority Mm -hmm. yeah no I I agree with that and Mm -hmm. I think as an awkward girl too I would just say that you know junior high I would never ever go back right Uh, (laughs) but music is was probably the one thing that I felt comfortable with Mm -hmm. and competent 
in. And so that became an identity that I could latch onto when everything else about your body or your social circle is just going up in flames. Um, It was a way to sort of hold fast to some piece of who you knew you were. So, yeah. yeah, and both of us are sitting here nodding our heads yes <laughs> to this because, you know, I watch my students now and the anxieties that they have and the way that they change when they get a phone in middle school. And when, yeah. you know, if, if middle school had the internet layered on top of that and social media, when I was a student, I can't even imagine I had a hard enough time, you know, with those awkward stages as it was. And I watch these students pulling away from things that they enjoy because of the stress of school and because of their anxieties. And I think how much refuge I took in music and in the friends that I had that understood that sort of place that was safe for me. Um, And I, I feel for those kids that are in school now and where are they getting that refuge that we found Mm. in our instruments or in our enjoyment of music. Wow, I think that's such a, that's, that's an amazingly accurate observation. And I'm hoping, I don't know, and maybe I'm being a Pollyanna here, but I'm hoping that like the worst adoptive speed bump of this new technology probably was my kids' generation. And Mm. we didn't know what we were doing, introducing it to them. They didn't know how to handle it. The schools didn't know how to handle it. My hope is that maybe now that it's becoming a more I can't even use the word endemic without rolling my eyes, but you know, it's a more ubiquitous part of our lives. Right. Maybe things will change a little bit because I genuinely think kids are still kids. Mm-hmm. Kirsten, after I played yes. one of the YYSO girls, um, who's a student of mine, she plays violin in the YYSO and she was there. And after the dress rehearsal, I mean, she came running up to me like on little, little footsteps backstage. Just she was giddy that she had been there and seen me on stage and that I was wearing jeans. And that, that, well, two things that reminded me, first of all, that as teachers, I think it's important that we are visible to our students as performers in some capacity. Um, You know, it doesn't have to be soloing with an orchestra, but just for them to see us, I don't know. doing what we tell them to do and doing it the way that we tell them to do it and enjoying ourselves on some level. Yeah. And I was just hopeful that maybe, I don't know, kids, human beings are still human. And even even though we think we're very sophisticated and we think we've made this great technological leap and Elon Musk thinks he's going to be the next cyborg, I really think we're pretty much still people who relate the same way we did when when we were all children. Right. So... Mm -hmm. That's what I meant by that, that girl coming rushing up to me. And it was just, it was so refreshing to see that kind of a, a breakthrough. You know, it's a breakthrough the teenage cool zone, but also just the technology barrier and the busyness barrier. It all sort of happened in that moment. It was nice. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, did you now? Okay. So you have shared with me or admitted to me in the past that you did play the bassoon at one point in your life. When was that? I was a pretty serious bassoon player, Chris, Kirsten. I, uh, I mean, honestly, I picked it up. I was a, I was a reluctant clarinet player because that's what we had. My mom and my dad both played clarinet in high school and we still had dad's clarinet. So when I said I wanted to play a band, it was here's a clarinet which I don't love. I mean, I, I was always in the third clarinet section because I just didn't love the instrument. Right. And at some point, Northeastern, who knows why, which at that point was a very rural district, they had a gorgeous German bassoon in their instrument closet. 
And the band director said, you know, who wants to play the bassoon? I'm like, get me out of the clarinets. And, <laughs> and so I did, and I didn't know anything about it except that it was Peter and the Wolf, it was the grandfather because my grandparents had the Peter and the Wolf recording with Sterling Holloway narrating. Um, so yeah, I, and I, I just fell in love with it. I think it was uh, because it was the bass line, because it has a distinctive voice, because, because it was a little quirky, because nobody else was doing it. And at that point, I wanted to be mm -hmm. different. Yeah. Um, so yes, I was very serious and, and took lessons alongside the piano up till probably the end of my junior year and did... Okay. I played in the York Youth Symphony, um, which was wonderful because so few pianists get that large instrumental ensemble experience of any quality. You know, marching in the Northeastern band was not the same thing, but sure. I did get to play some pretty great literature. Uh -huh. And then I wanted to double major and my, my parents, as I said, were not very well off and they looked at the cost of conservatory and just said, um, you get four years at best, and that's not going to allow you to double major because that would be a five-year degree. Pick right. one. Yeah. So, wow. So you could have been a, a bassoonist. I could have been a like different universe. I probably am a bassoonist. <laughs> <laughs> and how important is Peter and the Wolf to music education? Oh, like, it's it's the bomb. It's the absolute <laughs> most important piece of music for children to listen to. Yeah. Really? I mean, it is. It, it introduces those, those woodwinds and yeah. That's right. And it's a great story. And I remember being terrified of French horns. I didn't hear Peter and the Wolf until, I mean, maybe high school. Um, and that says something about my early years of music education. But um, now as a flute player, um, I don't know if I enjoy it as much because I don't think I really wanted to be the bird. <laughs> like, every time I have to play something where, where I'm the bird, it's like, why, why? Just because we have all the, you know, yeah. the capabilities here doesn't mean I always want, I, yeah, I think I said to somebody yesterday, you know, why can't we just be the whale sometimes? Or, you know, like, give me, give me a different animal. But you, know, um, you can be the whale. Isn't there that song of the whale? Yes. You, yeah, George Crumb. Uh, so I can go be a whale when I need to be. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, that's, that's a really tough one on this side, you know, versus everyone on the other side is just like, wow, this is so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, all, we all have our crosses to bear for our instruments, we I think. We do. Yes, so. said, said the duck. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. well, the duck is the least of my worries. Like, <laughs> so. Uh, so, so Gretchen, why... Um, did you choose Peabody then? Um, was it because you, was that the only place that you had auditioned or? No, I, um, I mean, I, I, I give Kathy Jacobson a lot of credit. We sort of sat down. I went to Eastern Music Festival between my junior and senior year of high school, which I was completely unprepared for because I had just started lessons with her, but she thought it was important that I get out there. Yeah. And then we sat down and went over. I had studied with at the festival with Peter Takash, who was out at Oberlin and uh, loved him. And, and it's all, you know how it, it is with um, tra family traditions of teaching. So you feel most comfortable in the tradition that you've been raised in. Mm -hmm. And so she was steering me toward places that had faculty members who had sort of come from that German school of playing that, that would at least, because I was, I was so far behind in so many aspects. She didn't want me to have to go off to school and relearn a whole new technical approach or, mm. or start over again as a freshman. So we very thoughtfully, she uh, guided me toward, I auditioned at Eastman 
and Oberlin and Peabody. Um, and I remember that. I mean, driving to Oberlin with my dad, mm-hmm. driving to Eastman in the crappy weather. You know how that mm-hmm. is. Because auditions are always in January, February. Yes. Everybody else on the planet knows where they're going to college and who their roommate is. And you're still waiting to hear if you've even gotten in. Right. That was the worst part of that experience was my friends all knowing and I was still just waiting to get acceptance letters. Um, And I just remember feeling like it was never going to happen. Yeah, so I I was accepted at all three places and actually got really nice scholarships from Oberlin and Eastman. Got nothing from Peabody. And like a teenager said to my parents, yes, but... That's where I want to go because that's where Kathy Jacobson is and that's where Leon Fleischer is. Plus, there's this really cute trumpet player that I was hanging out with. And was, let's just say the motivations weren't always pure. Are they when you're 18? Never, never. No. <laughs> so I ended up going to Peabody and, and I give my parents huge credit for not um, jerking my chain about needing to make that decision based on the finances. They really... My mom went went to work, she got a real estate license and she did that specifically so that I could go where I wanted to go. Wow. So yeah, that was the things your parents do for you that you don't really appreciate until many, many years later. Right. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. When- Plus, it didn't work out with the trumpet player anyway. So, you know, that was all the <laughs> bridge. Well, trumpet players, but- I know, right? Uh, we won't get into that. <laughs> So, um, so then how was your adjustment to college life? Um, was it challenging or was it rather easy for you? Were you glad to be away from home and, or, you know, that's, there's, there's two parts to that question. And the answer is both. Yes. I was ecstatic to be away from home because I thought I was just all that in a bag of chips when I was 17 and I was going to go off and set the world on fire. And I sure didn't want to do that from New York, Pennsylvania. So getting away from home was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also, like I, like I said, I was also so, I, I still remember going for my audition at the prep and it was just lucky. We drove down there on a February night and Kathy was the one listening to auditions and she heard me and then she talked to my parents and she took me into her studio. I went for my first lesson and she said, here, I want you to get, you know, the impromptus by Franz Schubert. And I looked at her, I was 15 years old. I said, who's Schubert? So it's kind of hard to imagine now that I actually went into a conservatory 18 months later. Yeah. You know, just barely knowing even what I was doing. And it was a little traumatic that way because conservatory is a shark tank, you know that. And piano at Peabody at that point was like the absolute worst. Maybe Juilliard was worse, but piano, piano at Peabody was pretty intense because Fleischer was there, because Ellen Mack was there, because Anne Schein was there. And you know, I was very, very aware like on day two that I was at the extreme lower end of the ability level of most of these students and it had woefully inadequate training and had so much catching up to do mm-hmm. um, so again to call on that stubborn bullheadedness I think if I had not been that kind of a person I probably would have just dropped out because it yeah. was so intimidating okay, so that obviously drove you like it and, and you know in, inspired you in a way I guess like to maybe work harder learn more I think it also inspired me to change my major to harpsichord by the time I was a junior because I was just so freaked out. 
Okay. Although I've talked to people since then who said, I'd never understood why you changed your major. You know, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it was my, it's like a classic response to the situation. You don't want to admit what you don't know. So you find a slightly more esoteric branch so that you can know more than those people know. And it was an ego salvation thing too. Although I, in, in defense of the harpsichord, I absolutely adore the instrument, the repertoire, and I've always been a Bach nut and that's what convinced me to, to uh, pursue it a little bit more. But I, I would suspect again, like with the trumpet player and going to Peabody, I would suspect my, my uh, need to transition to the harpsichord was probably also driven just out of absolute anxiety and fear over not being able to uh, to to recover yeah things that I didn't have so Morgan sorry no it's it's okay it's just this is like a very relatable experience for me because I was really behind and some of that was just a product of where I grew up and I changed teachers in high school and had you know, I had wonderful teachers who got me as far as they could get me, but just there was a lack of resources. And I had a great teacher for the last two years of high school. And we caught up on quite a few things, but certainly not everything. And the first time I got out of my bubble uh, and went to the flute workshop at Ohio State as the 10th grader, I sort of went, holy cow, like, listen to these people that are my age playing, and I don't know how (laughs) to do any of these things. And, and went back summer after summer and kept working my way up from the bottom. You know, it was like a slow climb. And when I went to school, at, at the time I knew I couldn't handle a conservatory environment. I had too much to do. I had, I just wasn't willing to put myself through it. And, but I also wanted to go somewhere far away from home and have a real school experience somewhere big, all of these things. But um, that experience of getting there and just feeling like, how will I ever learn all the things I don't know? And and it was, I think some of my stubborn tendencies might be slightly different than yours, but it was still a stubbornness that sort of kept me pushing uh, through the whole thing, a certain amount of like personal grit, that <laughs> just I'm going to do the thing I need to do here, um, whether it's a good idea or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's overwhelming, um, mm-hmm. but it can be motivating too, eventually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just, yeah, it just depends on what kind of personality you have and how you react to that. So when Gretchen, when you went to Amsterdam, was that while you were um, a student at Peabody? Was that after? That was, that was after, I mean, I was, I had switched and been a harpsichord major. So I finished the last bit of my junior year and my senior year as a harpsichord major. And then my teacher, Webb Wiggins, who is now retired from Peabody, he had been a student of Leonhardt's and he said, you should, you should apply to see if you can go study with him. And you do these things. You know, when someone says do that, you, you remember making recordings where you had to push play and record on the tape deck and, and you got one take. And, and uh, yeah. so I did. I, I applied to go study with him, you know, paid the postage to send a cassette tape to the Netherlands. And never, never really considering what would happen if I got in, which I did. Uh, which was then sort of the, oh, you caught the mail truck. How are you going to get there? Where are you going to stay? How are you going to pay for this? Um, because it's not a traditional postgraduate experience. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was an amazing experience. I'm sure. Again, I don't know 
I don't know if I was really even ready for that, you know, I, I, because I just switched my major to harpsichord. So again, you know, that seems to be the pattern of my life. Let's just go ahead and do it and I'll figure it out, which is a phrase. That yeah, I but that's good. All the time. So. I mean, but that's how, you know, you, you do the thing, you learn the stuff, you know, by like, sometimes you just have to like jump in and well, figure it out later. Um, I mean, <laughs> so. Yeah, that's my dad's motto is, you know, <laughs> he's always said to me, look, if someone asks you if you can do something, your answer is always, well, sure. And he yeah. said, then you go figure out how you're going to do it. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think that's kind of how I operate as well. <laughs> kind of like what we're doing here. Just <laughs> go, go and then we'll figure out details later. But yeah, um, but you learn as you go. Right. So um, and how so how long were you in Amsterdam? I was there for about two years, um, just and not officially like in a master's program, but it was more of a sort of an artist diploma. He, I was just taking lessons with him and he didn't even teach at the conservatory. He was on the faculty, but all the lessons were in his amazing 17th century canal house, which I mean, I had the full immersion Dutch experience. I would bicycle to my harpsichord lessons, you know, that doesn't get much more Dutch than that. Um, Where did you live? I lived, uh, there was a woman, an expat, uh, she was an American who taught English at the Amsterdam University. She was married to a Dutchman and she let the top floor, they had a house right on the Amstel River. Mm. And she let the top floor, it was kind of a two room, two bedroom shared bath and kitchen apartment. So I had an English organist roommate who was there studying and we became great friends. Mm. And it was, it was wonderful. I don't even know how all of this happened. You know, you look back and you think, I don't know how I made contact with her or why I, I don't. I cleaned their house so that I could stay there. I, the bike that I bought, I bought from a drug dealer. I mean, it was, you just you do, who had stolen it, of course. You know? Of course. <laughs> I don't know. You, as you say, you do the thing. And about two years, uh, and then I went to New England Conservatory. So from the Netherlands, I auditioned for John Gibbons. And that's when I started playing the money game with schools. You know, I, I got into NEC, I got into Oberlin, I got into University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And I wanted to go to NEC because Boston, uh, they didn't give me enough money. So I wrote back to them and just said, I would like to come, but you need to give me more. And then they did. Hey. So, you know, that was, that was one of those moments where you go, oh, <laughs> maybe I'm finally getting this or maybe some, I don't know, somebody hears something in me that I don't yet hear in myself. And you don't know until you ask. I mean, I'm I'm learning that a lot lately. Like, you just you don't know, and why? What? There's no harm in asking if they say no. Well, then they say no, and then you go in a different direction, and you just you know feel exactly. your way through. But yeah, and sometimes when people say no, it's a reflection on them and not you. Not always. I mean, auditions are their own thing, but you know, in general, um, right. you just have to have a little bit of. Um, a thick skin about it. So that's interesting. I, I like the idea of having thick skin. And I, I think as a performer and someone who takes auditions or, or does that, you do have to have mm -hmm. a thick skin, but it has to be permeable because <laughs> if it's too thick, then nothing ever gets out from you. And it's a good point. You know, so, so it's sort of the, the, uh, yeah, the permeability of our skins. It has to work. Yeah the correct way at the right time. So. Yes, it's the perspective to know what feedback is useful and um, how to share, right. how to ask, 
how to ask the questions you need to ask. So yeah, per permeability and and I think perspective on what's coming back at you. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Mm -hmm. So then you were at New England for two years? I did. I did a master's at New England. And the reason they gave me money is because I taught music history. I became Ann Hallmark and Helen Greenwald's teaching assistant. Okay. Why? I don't know. I guess they assumed since I'd been in Amsterdam that I had absorbed, you know, early music history through my pores. But I love that. And that's when I, I think I, I caught the teaching bug for classroom teaching at the college level. Uh, it's, yeah, they, they just entrusted me with their freshman music history section. And oh, I thought that was great. Um, wow. And I did some ear training teaching and things. So made it, made it through, taught at the Franklin School for the Performing Arts, which was a train ride out of Boston three times a week to a little community music school, sublet an apartment with five other people. You know, and Boston is amazing. It's such a university town. It's so full of music and academics and just it's walkable. You know, you can live there when you don't have a car. Uh, there's the tea made great friends, made lots of contacts. Um, and my mom's second cousin, Ron Barron, was the principal trombone for the Boston Symphony while I was there. So I got lots of stage wow. passes that I could not otherwise have come close to affording, so. Wow. Yeah. That's great. cool. So did you have a lot of performance opportunities while you were there, like outside of the school setting or? Not outside the school setting uh, because it's a uh, harpsichord is an unwieldy object to move. Yeah, that's true. Performances. <laughs> yeah, so not a lot. I mean, I did a lot of performing in the school. I got my first, what should I call it? It wasn't a serious church job, but it, it kind of was. And that was another one of those, can you play the organ? Well, sure, um, kind of. I think, yeah. let me figure this out. There's gotta be several pieces that only use two foot pedals, right? Right. <laughs> um, so I got a job, my first church jobs up there. So I did I did get my, my church gig experience started with the Christian scientists, which was a strange and wonderful start to the journey. Um, so yeah, and, and I got to experience, I think as a graduate student, you are challenged to do um, things that stretch you more. You're not just, on that four-year pedagogical curriculum train that you're on when you're in your undergraduate. So I, I got to play for, they had a, a festival of Gyorgy Ligeti's music and Ligeti came. He was, mm -hmm. it was one of the last things that he did. And I played continuum for him and, and on the harpsichord, which is this wild, you need a pedal harpsichord for it. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was an amazing experience. And all I can really remember now is that he had, stepped in an icy puddle on his way in and his feet were wet. So he came into the studio where the harpsichord was, which was this cool attic room with a marble floor and took his big shoes off and took his socks off and put them on the radiator and sat there barefoot while I played his piece for him. <laughs> How can it? <laughs> so funny that like I think when we talk about people like him we remember these quirky stories more than you know sometimes more than other things because I'm just thinking of uh, a uh, former assistant principal of the Phil Philadelphia Orchestra who told me a story about playing Poulenc's uh, woodwind sextet with Poulenc and how it was after a Philadelphia Orchestra concert and Poulenc was like in his slippers and like <laughs> just this whole, you know, it's just all these quirky little stories. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, when, when, when you realize though that that musicians and so like with my student coming backstage to see me or with me having Ligeti take his socks off or, or Poulenc in his slippers. 
I think that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's a real um, psychological shift for a student to realize that, um, you know, music is a career, but you're still this normal person. Everybody still puts their pants on one leg at a time in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, that it was, it was kind of, a, I mean, Lionheart never felt completely human to me because mm-hmm. it was so intimidating to go into this house. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was, I wasn't quite ready for that. He wasn't human enough, but <laughs> John Gibbons was, and I think that's where maybe you catch up with yourself by the time you get to graduate school, you start to feel a little more solid in your own shoes and think, okay, yeah. I'm going to be a musician and I am who I am. I'm still a, like a normal person, right? I don't mm-hmm. have to be capital L Leonhardt or, or something. We, right. we pull them down off their pedestals a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and don't we want to humanize? I mean, we want people to relate to what we do when we're playing. So it's it. I think it helps if we're human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, t- I told someone at the at the Unitarian Church I had to write like a little monthly um, paragraph or something for their newsletter, and I'd said something about having stage fright, which I do, um, and, and I attribute that often to the to the, re- the reason that I have stage fright is because I had sketchy early training and didn't have enough experience kind of learning how to perform. So I've always been doing it, you know, running after the mail truck in that case. Um, but she she came up to me and she said, really? You know, you have stage fright? And I'm thinking, yeah, does it not show? And she said, not at all. So... <laughs> How people perceive us, I think, is a revelation um, because they they do. You learn how to put your thick skin on and sit down and do what you have to do as a professional. And I don't think we realize sometimes uh, how we come across that way. Uh We're not very approachable. We are not who we feel we are inside. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I always make a point with my students of sharing you know, real experiences that I've had of not doing well in auditions or, you know, the struggles that I, I had in my playing as a young player, because I think it's important, you know, for them to get that perspective that like we've all, we, it's not like, you know, they'll, especially when they're really little, you know, you'll play something for them and they'll go like, how do you play that way? Well, okay, I've been playing since I was eight years old. So I've been doing like a lot of time here, you know, but, you know, and then you tell them, oh, but when I was your age, this is, what I could you know and and it gives them perspective it makes it all feel not so far away or a little right. more attainable certainly shows them that they that they too can do it you know yes and you know it's attainable it's like mm-hmm. these things happen sometimes you get water in your keys and sometimes <laughs> it, it does it like during a solo and you mm-hmm. can't play your instrument at all and your friend has to play the part for you like it, <laughs> yeah you know, these things they they happen and they're embarrassing and they're tough to get through but right I mean yeah again like you said like it's relatable and mm-hmm. I mean from a to sort of like pivot to to the teaching thing just a little bit I think that's why I like having I call them rep classes maybe you call them studio classes or something mm-hmm. I try sometimes I'll divide them by age and we'll do a really intense thing for little kids or an audition workshop for older kids but my favorite thing is to have all the ages together Mm-hmm. Um, because for the kids themselves, I mean, I, they look at me and 54 to them sounds like an impossibly ancient person. So they'll never get where I am because they're never going to be 54. Mm-hmm. But if you have, you know, someone who's just a few years older than you and is playing something that you can aspire to play realistically. Yeah. And it's so motivating for them. So, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Same yeah. with, yeah. 
I was going to say, and, and if that person gets up and has a bad memory slip or makes a mistake or something, then we can all talk about it. And it's, it's a survivable experience, you know, and it's a safe place to do it. It's a safe place. Thank you. It yeah. is. Yes. And that's, I was just going to say, it's the same with my students and they're like, we do studio recitals a couple times a year and they have in some ways become normal for my students. And at some point I felt like maybe it's bad that we've gotten a little comfortable. And I think it's great because, you know, they don't know each other super well, but they know each other well enough. And they understand that that recital is a safe space for whatever happens. That's, that's their laboratory for performance. And um, even if they don't want to play anywhere but there, they still get the benefits of those experiences and living through them and coming out the other side, being able to reflect on it. Yeah, I think I think frequency performance. I, I, when I first started teaching, before I had kids, before we had this sixteen-acre property, I used to do monthly. I called them just rep classes, and they, mm -hmm. were, you know, for an hour, and it was, I don't know, it was play things that there, you know, that was the place where you could play with the music because mm -hmm. for the recitals you have to be memorized. But here's where you are. I just I'm learning a sonata. Can I play just the exposition? Mm -hmm. So it was this, yeah, this. And they had them at Peabody. That's where I was exposed to that for the first time. Which mm -hmm. was, yeah, you could, but that was super intense. You know, the prep was rep class on Saturday morning was these little wunderkinder playing list etudes and things like that. It was a bit freakish, but yeah. <laughs> um, Mr. Fleischer had a, a, a weekly class on Friday afternoon at Peabody and it was fabulous. You know, he had the crappiest studio at Peabody. He had no ego in the game. He had the fourth floor back, crummy windows, two pianos jammed into the space and people just piled into that room. And when he would sit in the armchair in the corner, you know, he has his glasses down on his nose like this. And I remember you could play, and of course it's a high stakes game, you're playing for Leon Fleischer, but he was so paternal and so warm mm -hmm. about the way that no matter how anyone played, they were invited into improvements mm -hmm. in this public space in front of their peers which might be at conservatory the most jagged edge of anything because you're all competing for the same attention and scholarship and right. Um, so that was where I first thought, oh, this is a this is a healthy and extremely necessary part of a student's development. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have those uh, classes, Kirsten, when you were in college? Did you have those like studio rep classes? Um, we did at Michigan State, yes, um, mm -hmm. which was mostly like Barrett exercises every week um, with mm -hmm. Dan Silver. Um, yeah, when I was at IUP, it was more of um, like uh, oboe band <laughs> 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 and just getting together and like playing, um, you know, like, you know, trios, quartets and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But it's just interesting because like my studio at Ohio State, it was different when I was at UW for grad school, we didn't have those extra, we just had studio, I think even like once a week, I can't remember now, maybe twice, but at Ohio State, every studio had twice a week meetings wow. for an hour, um, but flute studio had an extra, we had Monday night studio for two hours every week, and it was rep class, that's all that was for, that time was reserved explicitly for us to play for each other and receive comments and give comments. Wow. And it was like, you know, this weekly masterclass time. And in hindsight, the, the effect that that had on my development, I heard so much repertoire and I heard so much teaching um, from, you know, my teacher was still is just so you say warm, 
warm and just had this ability to make us all feel very welcome in that space to do whatever it was we were capable of doing. And, and that was so impactful, that time that we spent together. And then it freed those other times that were reserved for us for different things, flute choir, etudes, technique, whatever, um, pedagogy. And, um, you know, I'm not, I, I always knew how important it was, but just hearing it articulated in different ways, you know, reminds you um, what a difference things like that can make. Yes, I think it's one of the few places as a pianist, especially, and I'm sure it's different, you know, it's different for your wind instruments when you're doing this um, in a flute situation where you're not in an ensemble, right? It's a different thing. But for pianists, we have so few opportunities. I mean, you can see I've got two pianos here. So having the kids in a space where you can actually do side by side playing and it's supportive in a way that solo performance, I mean, I, I'm sure you get up on stage and play things that are solo, but largely everybody else on the planet gets up on stage with a pianist behind them. You're never quite 100% alone. So I, I like for my kids also to know that piano, which can be so lonely, you're always by yourself and every mistake is yours and yours alone because it's just you on stage. I, I like to give them an opportunity to not be quite, have your rear end hanging out in the wind quite so much. So. Yeah, and that's one thing that I definitely appreciated uh, with the YC prep recitals that you organized, um, that often there were duets with you and your, your younger kids. Um, and there, um, at one point, there was like a father and son who, who um, played together on stage. And yeah, it definitely it takes that edge off of being in front of all of these strangers and because for those younger kids, it's, that's, that's a tough thing um, to be able to do, but that to be there with your teacher who is supportive um, and, or a parent even, you know, or somebody else, it's just, um, it's, it's very helpful, yeah. <laughs> reassuring. Oh. It's a team sport, you know, it becomes, mm -hmm. it's, it's, as a musician, we put so much emphasis on the solo accomplishments, you know, how, how good are you? But in the end, I mean, obviously making music in community is the single most yeah. exciting thing about what we do. So yes, you have to be accomplished enough to participate, but yeah. I so wanna make sure that there are opportunities to give people that sense of, you get that uplift. Yes, um, and yeah, collaboration is key. And I'm also like finding that too. Um, and we've talked about that, Morgan and I, like throughout COVID, you know, when all of that was just like taken away and then we were all on our own, you know, and playing duets was not possible. Playing in an ensemble was not possible. Or if it was, it was extremely difficult to do so. And um, yeah, just the appreciation that you get then for collaboration and being able to be there with somebody else and and you don't realize like how much you um, feed off of each other uh, until there's nothing and it's empty yeah. so, so I, I did duets with my students during covid but of course the light you know that you can't do it in in real time so i spent a lot of time recording mm -hmm. Duet yeah. parts with a click track, and then they would put their earbuds, you know. And so, mm -hmm. I think it gave an appreciation for it when we're sitting here side by side, in that 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 kind of responsive. It's it's conversational instead of, you know, I don't know. 
I, I love doing duets with my students and my teacher in high school, my first teacher, we always ended our lesson playing duets. And at the time, it just felt like this really fun thing that we did. But, you know, now as I'm teaching, I, the value of doing that with my students, you know, even if they don't quite, if they're not cognizant of the immediate benefit, it doesn't matter. It, it's so beneficial to them to have that experience. Um, it's so worth doing, but you know, you mentioned when we were getting started, Gretchen, about um, you know teaching, um, but we're just talking now about um, the community aspect of things, and I think it's a really interesting thing. We're in school, and we get community in school, and we leave, and then we get pushed out on our own, and we have no. As musicians, I think we all kind of flounder a little bit because, and then people, you know, they they leave this career, I think sometimes because of that loneliness that happens. But I, I think on the flip side of that teaching, you know, students love band or orchestra or choir because it's a team sport and lessons sometimes just feels like a lot for kids because it's this one really intense individual activity. Not every student's prepared for that. Um, and I always think about that when I'm doing things, trying to create a culture in my studio where my students feel like there's a community of other students doing what they do. Um, so it's just an interesting thing to um, try to cultivate in teaching in private teaching. It's hard. I don't think you're, you're, you make a really valid point. Um, and even with sports, like my daughter was a track and field athlete, which probably comes closest to being a musician mm -hmm. in that I mean, cross country, you're also doing individual times, but in, in the track and field where she would be, I, I am a hurdler or I am mm -hmm. a long jumper or whatever. And you are really competing against yourself, yeah. but you're still part of a team. You know, your score contributes to whether your team has enough points or not. And so often with the, and again, it's just not to whine about being a pianist, but I can whine a little bit because it's, there are so few opportunities for students who are pianists to do any kind of collaborating. And I think that's a pedagogical gap, actually. I wish there were more opportunities, you know, that the accompaniments for middle school choir were written for middle school pianists instead of mm. professional accompanists, because yeah. to give a student the opportunity to bootstrap themselves up, I, I think is important. Um, and pianists often, you know, it's, it's either, it's an all or nothing game for them. You're either the accompanist for the entire choir playing this awful reduction of Hallelujah Chorus that nobody can manage, not even me, mm -hmm. or you're not playing at all until somebody shoves you on stage and says, now play your Chopin Nocturne. Yeah, that's such, that's such a good point. And that's something, some, something I've never thought about, like having the accompaniments for choir, uh, you know, be at the level of <laughs> the of pianists at that age because yeah <laughs> yeah they're not and and we yeah. did you know when we did the the first couple of summer camps one of the greatest pleasures i had and it wasn't a it wasn't a musical pleasure because the end result was not particularly delightful for the ears but the energy with the kids was oh we have this um you know, Celtic ensemble, and you've got, you know, four beginning violin players and two cellists and somebody who's got their flutes, and you make it just so that everybody feels capable. Uh -huh. And I could integrate the keyboard players into that experience because I was writing the music for it. Right. It's so rare for a pianist, a student pianist, to get that, that charge of collaborative music making. Uh -huh. And so your point, Morgan, I think, I didn't, I never thought about what you said, but 
yes, when you're in conservatory or a graduate school or, or a music program, like everybody is so into this and it's great. And then you get birthed into the world where really very few people care about it at that level. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the struggles and one of the questions I thought uh, was interesting is like, how, you know, how can we maintain the excellent standards that we should have for ourselves as professionals while acknowledging that pretty much we're going to be playing Pachelbel Canon every weekend and, and we should do it well because people are touched by that and that's an important part of what you do as a musician in community, but you can't let your standards slip. And it's hard to maintain that, you know, for yourself, you know, who wants to practice exercises by yourself? Nobody. Right. Yeah. And still keeping it interesting <laughs> and not getting bored with what, what you're doing and being able to, yeah, make money, yeah. <laughs> make a living um, by doing something that might like bore you to tears or just so repetitive and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and on the social side of that, you know, when I was finishing grad school, I, I got done with school and I had a big private teaching studio. I was teaching adjunct far away from where I lived in Madison. So I was driving a lot. I was like never home. And all my friends, even the ones who were musicians would want to do things and they'd say, oh, but Morgan can't because her schedule's bizarre or like her schedule, you know, but then you, you, it's painfully obvious how different what you do is from a lot of people around you. Um, and that was a really, um, difficult experience going from being in school where everybody was doing what you were doing and then being done with school and suddenly that social aspect the ability to just have that built-in socialization is gone um that's a difficult thing i think i think you're you know and one of your questions that was on there that that was you know how do you integrate your family life or whatever that has been in hindsight now i can say that's been maybe the most difficult thing is exactly what you're saying there um, that that you are not working in an adult environment. You are constantly working with children, whether it's in a classroom or one-on-one, -on -one. and then you're working second shift because you studio teach, and you're working weekends because you have a church gig and a concert schedule. And so the only time that you have is, you know, breakfast has become my go-to. As you know, Kirsten, breakfast is my go-to meal because I figure that's when most of my musical friends are available. Right. Late, late breakfasts, you know, not, not yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah. And, and to, be, to be lonely, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and the difficulty of raising family or having a normal marriage with someone who's not a musician. I mean, my husband is yeah. trained as a musician, but he's not a, a professional musician. So, you know, the whole, the whole thing gets upside down, you know. Yeah, that's one, that's one thing I was going to ask you too, like, and, and like, about, like, I mean, we talk about balance and like balancing family, like um, how much of an adjustment was it once you had your kids? Um, like, and how, did, how actually did your career change when you had your children or did it not much? Well, I was, I was very much in the full-time church music at that point. And, you know, strangely, like church music is one of the few musical environments where you can take your children and are kind of, I wouldn't say celebrated for it, but at least, you know, they're welcome right. as opposed to, you know, a symphony rehearsal or something. Yes. Right. Um, so the balance point, I, I don't know. So this, the, we, I can put a big like tidy bow on this because you ask who was one of the greatest non-teaching influences on you. And I have to say my grandmother, 
who lived in this house where we live. We are the sixth generation in this farmhouse. Oh, wow. We've done some significant remodeling, as you can see, but, yeah. um, and she, my mom's mother. And I, you know, I, I came to talk to her and I'm getting married. And she said, what are you gonna do about being a concert pianist? Because from the time I was, you know, 15, it's like, I'm, what are you gonna be? I'm gonna be a concert pianist. And I didn't know what that meant. Right. And she said, well, you know, that's a difficult job to have when you have a, a husband and family. And I, at first I was very, yeah. you know, in the way that we are when we're in our mid twenties and you're going, well, I can do it all. I mean, I'll, what do you mean? I, I, do you think I can't handle it? Yeah. But the wisdom of that later came back to me, which is you can, you can do it all. You just can't do it all at the same time time right yes <laughs> and you know you don't you don't think that way when you when, when you are young and you're full of energy and you can stay up all night and get up the next morning and go to your 8 a.m's and things like that but as I got into my 30s and the schedule starts to grind on you and you have other obligations you know older relatives start to get sick and need your attention or you have young children who definitely need your attention uh-huh. it's been a process of you know kind of like moving the shells around on top of the table and just sure, yeah getting, for this season of my life, okay, or even, for the, and the time frame is, you know, it's all of the above. Okay, for this season, I really need to be home. Mm-hmm. I need to stop teaching at 5.30. I'm just going to take a pay cut because I want to eat dinner with my family. Right. Okay. Or for this day, you all are going to sit in front of the TV and it's not going to rot your brain because I need to practice for two uninterrupted hours. And you know what? I, it's just the way it has to be. Sure. So it's a series of concessions and... Mm-hmm. And acknowledgments that this is a strange career uh, to try to mesh with a normal adult family communal life. Well, right. And there are so many options with music and so many different like avenues and like with like the, the church work that you do or, you know, teaching and then the, the solo playing and which, um, you know, makes it like in, in some ways it's it's great that it is flexible in that way and it can be fluid throughout your life like that um it's not yeah and you guys you both you know this because you're professionals but you know for instance with the the choral fantasy or when i did the brandenburgs last november so there is a level of preparation when you're doing something like that that is above and beyond just I'm playing a particular gig, or even I'm I'm collaborating with my friends and doing a chamber music recital or something. When you're when you're soloing, mm-hmm. um, I found so, it very difficult to to get my head around. And I I wanted to ask you. So it was just you know a month or so ago that you soloed with York Symphony and played the Beethoven Choral Fantasy with the orchestra. Um, was that a piece that you had performed previously? Or was that? Yes. And luckily, yes, I did it in 2012 with the York College Orchestra, which was, let's call it a subpar musical experience, but at least it was, uh, you know, to get up there and do it. So it was not new in my fingers. Um, And we were supposed to do it in 2020, the big Beethoven year, right? And then everything just got washed away. Um, Yeah. I had it concert ready in May of 2020, and then 10 days before the program, they washed it out. So 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 how does how does you, your preparation for that work what does that look like um like getting something well which at one point was a piece that you didn't 
know and had to learn to a point where it's ready, you're ready to play in front of over a thousand people. So here's the funny thing about the first time I played it is that my kids were, I think Noah was probably 12 and Sophie was 10, right? And I made them play in the orchestra with me. So not only was I preparing myself, I was trying to teach a 10 year old the entire cello part for the Beethoven Choral Fantasy. And I'm like, well, on what planet did I think this was a good idea? <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, it was great to have them with me and they got to watch me perform, yeah. which then put it into perspective for them why mommy has to sit you in front of the TV for two hours to play scales. And I was like, oh, because this. Um, so the, to answer your, that was an indirect answer. Um, this was a difficult preparation period for me because I don't know, everything post COVID when things started to open up, I think everybody was just literally starved for opportunity. And we said yes to everything. And so after a while you're going, wait, you know, the calendar is bloated. And by the way, I'm supposed to be practicing the Beethoven. Um, so I had kind of a mini meltdown in early April. And I, I have the luxury, and I mean that because my husband has a job that, you know, has a steady income of saying, okay, gang, no studio lessons for three weeks, because I am freaking out. I need, I need to practice between four and six hours a day, because that's what I have to do. Because putting it in around the edges or doing 45 minutes after you've taught for five hours straight is just mm -hmm. not cutting it here. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I knew that uh, I could tell internally that I wasn't where I wanted to be. And I had the ability to put on the afterburners and set the students aside. Um, and then it was it was worth it in the end. You know, they saw me perform and they went, oh, like my children had done. Like, ah, that's why Mrs. Decker needed to not teach for three weeks. Mm -hmm. right. um, but it's hard and I can't, I can't do that level of preparation. And my standards for myself are too high. Mm -hmm. And my previous training to come back to my old like excuse, and it sounds like an excuse, but I don't have the depth to call on. Like, I feel like I have colleagues who had such profoundly mm -hmm. excellent training when they were young, that even when they're skating around on a busy schedule, they can still dig deep and call on that. I just don't. I have to practice like a mule when I'm preparing. Yeah. Right. And it's hard work and I got to do it every day and I got to clock in and I've got to, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's not glamorous, right? Practicing. Yeah. It's what I tell my students too. You know, I'm sorry, you're not liking this, but you know what? It's your job. Mm -hmm. so. I relate to this like so deeply uh, in terms of, of the amount of space I need to practice. I am not like a, a small chunk practicer. There are, you know, people who can turn everything else off 20 minutes, turn it back on, turn it, you know, and I can't, I can't. And I'm, I, when I need to focus on something, I need time to focus on it. And, and I understand that rising anxiety when you have something approaching and you don't have the space that you need to dig into something the way you want. Um, and, it, and it's interesting to me to think about what you were saying about just um, previous experience and training and having that foundation to stand on when you have an important performance, because I love having those big opportunities, but it's not a natural thing for me. It's a lot of work and it doesn't mean it's not worth it or that I don't enjoy it, but it's a very different, it's, it's just a lot of work, it's a very different experience. And Gretchen, you mentioned stage fright. And so how have you worked through that? Like, would you say, like, when, so when you performed this a month ago with York Symphony, like, what, what was, I don't know, on a scale of one to 10, where, where was that stage fright? 
Cool. Um, I felt pretty prepared technically, but that is, you know, the piece and it's this monstrous, you know, straight off the bats, you walk out and you play this six and a half minute long cadenza, mm. like lay it down. And if, if you screw that up, if you have insecurity in that, it kind of sets the tone for the whole performance. So I, you know, that, I was very nervous about that. And I have to give my husband a huge shout out here because what it really comes down to, I think for all of us uh, as performers is we want, well, as human beings, right? We want to be accepted by the group. And so when you put yourself out there on stage, I think my greatest fear is not, not being accepted, that what I am about to present will not be accepted by who's listening to it. And if I don't present it well, then that lack of acceptance is my fault. So it's on me to be the perfect conduit for Beethoven's music, for the piano, the sounds, the, the artistry of the piano. And it's like the Olympics. Right now, one performance, the first six minutes really matter. You don't get any do-overs. Anything that happens is on you, go. Uh, so I was very nervous. And Joachim said to me, he, he's, you know, he, he was in the dressing room with me, which I really appreciate until about quarter after seven. <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm gonna love you no matter what. He said, you know, my affection for you is not based on how you play in the next you know, 31 minutes. And to hear that, and for, for anyone to hear that, you don't really hear it, but you have to hear it repeatedly, right? So we have to always say to ourselves, I was lucky enough to have my husband say it directly, meaningfully to me before I had to go out on stage, say it to your students all the time. You know, I'm not going to throw you out of the studio if you have a memory slip. Yeah. Really okay. And so it was a nine on the scale of one to 10. Wow. But it was the first time that I actually managed to go out on stage then. And I don't know, it was, um, <laughs> so I'm 54 years old and that's probably one of the three times that I've gone on stage and felt like I said what I wanted to say and knew that I could say yeah. and didn't get in my own way. Yeah. Well, it, so. it was a phenomenal performance. And it's and it surprises me to hear that you are worried about what other people think. <laughs> I think to, to me, like you're, I don't know, you're you to me seem so grounded and solid and um, like that you would have that kind of worry. Just it surprises me. But I mean, aren't we all still thirteen-year-old girls? I mean, oh, is, yeah. <laughs> is that what it comes down to? It is. It is, but but like we were talking about earlier, you know, it just humanizes the, the whole experience. Yeah. I mean, you said some really impactful things just now. Um, I think what we forget, because critique is such an important part of what we do, is that the, the human aspect of it goes away. We forget that like, while what we do matters, the quality of what we do absolutely matters or we wouldn't do it. It also doesn't matter <laughs> you know and it's it's how many mm -hmm. how many times have we had a performance and this is what I tell my students where something doesn't go right I mean I had I 
like was playing a one of the big bizet flute solos one time and i played an a flat when there wasn't one like where did that come from it came out of i don't i have no idea i've been playing that solo for years yeah what happened but it happened mm-hmm. and then i thought oh my god no one's ever gonna hire me <laughs> like this ridiculous a flat and it, that wasn't true you know it just it, it we we are human and and it's this we put an importance there that we need for our motivation but that you know also sort of wrecks us a little bit um and it just i think one of the most gratifying things about getting to know other musicians for me is understanding that like we all feel this complication of what we do and how it relates to the real world and how <laughs> the humanness of it all and feeling satisfaction in in our own production uh but also remembering that it's okay for things to not be perfect because they aren't I read such a, I mean, I, I read such an interesting thing, and I'm not sure I would quote it exactly correctly, but it's, it was a, a book that was describing, you know, I used to think that, that, you know, time was just something that moved forward and the events were the things that happened in time. Now I think that actually the events are the things that matter the most and create the forward sense of time. So I love the idea that each concert is like this opportunity to create time. It's not this speed bump that you're working around. I want to be in the concert moment and in time creating it right then. And it's so, so difficult. Yeah. I get in my own way. We all do. We all are made up of a, like a little tapioca soup of ego and insecurity. And, and you never know when the A flat's going to come out when it should. No. Yeah. I mean, you just don't, and it, you, but you can't live in fear of those things either. So um, you have how to, pr- true is that though? how true, how true is that to teach to our students that, mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to play an A flat once in a while, but you know what? It's in the rear view mirror. As soon as it happens, it's right. over and gone. And you're still, the event is still in progress. It's still unfolding time. In right. front of you. So living in present, you know, it's kind of a really philosophical thing to talk about with an eight yes. year old, but maybe they know it better than we do because they don't have those, Mm-hmm. Yeah, not yet. They usually don't have those hangups. That hits about eleven, twelve. They start getting yeah a little. I had a <laughs> I had a piano teacher who used to say, "People remember the beginning and the end, and whatever happens in the middle is up for grabs." You know, and <laughs> you in know, some ways that is an, so funny. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with that. It's an oversimplification <laughs> of that concept of being in the moment, and you know, I've I really have an interest. Uh, I love mindfulness meditation and it's taught me a lot about the idea that there literally is nothing besides right now and so in some ways all of those things the good and the bad that happened before don't really have much bearing on what happens right in this moment each each moment is a new opportunity for for good or bad that's you know that that's the gift we need to give to our students right there that's that's it absolutely in in and out of music well, Mr. Fleischer used to say, and that's so, I love that you just said that because somebody was playing this ridiculous and it was, oh, I don't know, it was a Chopin ballade or something. And it had one of those awful runs that's all little teeny weeny notes and they were struggling to play it. And he did, he literally looked at them and said, start it confidently. Whatever happens in the middle will happen, but the last six notes have to be absolutely brilliant and well-placed and the landing has to be spectacular. And then everybody will think that you did that. <laughs> so I, you know, start well, finish well, and yeah, be in it. That's that's such a great. Mm-hmm. Sure, we should all be able to achieve that. I never feel like that before I go on stage. 
<laughs> so, so when, now this will probably be one of my last questions, but when you are um, stressed and like when you're um, gearing up for a performance like that, or even just like day to day um, stress, like what do you do to manage your, your stress level? Um, I mean, you have, you have the aerobic gardening. <laughs> in season, I have aerobic gardening. Now. Right. I have that right now. Um, so, so one. This is going to sound so strange, and I wonder if our students do this ever because they live in such a wired world. But on the deck that we have, we have a, a pergola or a lanai, and I trained this trumpet vine, and it has gone up and crawled across it, and it's just fabulous to lay on your back on the chaise lounge and look up and let your mind go, not blank, but just quiet. Mm -hmm. To be quiet is one of the absolutely most important things for me to de-stress is I don't wanna listen to music. I don't want to even read anything. And I love reading, I'm an avid reader, but to just let your mind be still and to do that and have the space and the place and at least 25 minutes <laughs> to do it. Yeah. When you have young children or a busy teaching schedule or a crappy commute, it doesn't always work out. So intentional um, space to just be, to, to be, right? Mm -hmm. And that, and Morgan is so good with this. I am, I am terrible <laughs> with quieting myself like and I actually I need to actually like set aside time to do it like I would need to like set a reminder on my phone to um to meditate or you know something because I'm just like constantly you know thinking overthinking and, and that kind of thing and I know that that's something that I need to do and that would help me in many many aspects but like to be able to do that is just you know I'm <laughs> impressed that you both like you both go there and do that. I'm learning. I don't I wouldn't say I'm successful always, but that is yeah, it's fun. You do it. So there were five, I just have to bring this up because it's been sticking in my head. There were five words that the Unitarian minister of all people, um, she, she used these in her speech, whatever they call them in the Unitarian church. I don't even know. The lingo is all new to me. Um, but she said, you know, she was talking about faith formation and I'm thinking this actually really applies to music for me. And she said, you know, it's something that when you are very young, it's caught just because you live in an environment that has music available to you, mm -hmm. then it's taught, you know, you learn it, mm -hmm. then it's bought, you have to buy into it and decide that this is your path. Mm -hmm. Then it's sought which is you realize that you're, you're perpetually needing to seek for the next piece of it. And then it's wrought, you make it. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, I'm somewhere between the sought and the wrought stage mm -hmm. of my musical career right now. I'm still, I know that there's still so much more that I want, mm -hmm. but I'm in the process of making it with everything that I have had available to me so far. So mm -hmm. maybe that's the way to think about it is that it's just, it's an it's a forward moving the process creative process you know right yeah evolving but it's interesting too this is like another reason we need community as musicians is because 
there are so many career paths that don't require that kind of constant personal regeneration where you are constantly growing and building and and envisioning and you know there's not not everybody dedicates themselves to a a thing that requires it right and the pruning and the weeding weeding. we can go right down the gardening metaphor path Yeah, that's uh, great. Um, no, so actually, I, one more question, and then and then we are done. But um, you are an avid reader. What is the last thing that you read that had an impact on you? Oh, my. I love this question. <laughs> and I, you know what? I am not going to remember the author's name, but the book is called Uncommon Measures. And she was a concert violinist in training who flamed out, could not handle the performance stress, and then went back to school and studied like physics and things like that and wrote this amazing book, synthesizing her whole experience as a childhood daughter of a Korean mother and an American father, child prodigy type violinist who decided not to pursue that path. I found that book to be profoundly moving um, for her honesty, for one thing. Mm. Um, I'm also, I just finished Annie Proulx's Postcards, which was from 1992, which was delicious. That was a wonderful novel. I'm reading a book that my dad got me about the infrastructure of cities, the 99% invisible things that you just don't know about because my dad's an engineer, <laughs> um, which is also fascinating. Yeah. And I'm reading a book called Do I Stay a Christian, which is by Brian McLaren, which is asking really hard questions that, that I find also, you know, to that, that probing, that constant assessing of where we are in our artistic journey and our faith journey and our personal journey. Um, I like to be poked a little bit. So mm-hmm. those are some of the things that I'm reading. I'm in a book club, we read amazing things and I don't have to pick them, but once a year. So <laughs> that's kind of nice too. That's yeah. something I've always wanted to do is be in a book club, but my schedule. <laughs> Right. You know, right. it always is a barrier to that, but I'm like typing notes over here on these books. <laughs> Sounds interesting to me. Oh, I would be Not happy that I to couldn't... send you our book list. Yeah. Oh, I would love that. It's, I mean, I think it's, um, I have always loved to read, but um, COVID left me so much time for it. And then I was very anti-e-reader and we took a trip to Japan and I was like, I can't carry enough books on this trip. I got a Kindle, but during 2020, you can get library books right. electronically. And so it was like this newfound just joy in reading. Um, and I just like, can't, I can't quit now. So it's, I, I love to hear what people are interested in when they read. Well, I'll put one more plug in and that's for Maria Popova. She does a blog called The Marginalian. I, I just started to, to receive it. And actually, I, it was, um, I took George Mumford's Mindful Athlete course, and he, he yeah. plugs that newsletter. He really enjoys it. Love, love it. And this, you know, she's sort of an omnivorous thinker and writer. And so, yeah, highly recommend that. Just it's twice a week. So mm-hmm. it comes right to your email. You can check it out. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much, Gretchen. Uh, this was an awesome conversation and it's been great, like, yeah, kind of like picking your brain and, and getting to know you a bit better. And I think um, a lot of people are interested to hear like what, what you have to say. Uh, I think so anyway. <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I hope so. I hope so. I'm choking on my own water here. So I'm just... That's okay. <laughs> 
This is only being recorded, so. That's right, I know. So make sure you take that part out. All right. (laughs) But um, thank you to everyone who is listening. Um, If any of our listeners have questions or suggestions, you can always email us at lifebetweenthenotes at gmail.com. In addition, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Um, We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and if you're listening, you already know this. So so thank you so much, um, and thank you, Gretchen. Thank you, Morgan, and we can do our Zoom wave. And um, have a great day. And thank you all for your support. Thanks. It was great to talk to you. Great.